0: Well, a number of years ago, I had a chance to read a book by a Christian author named Dr. James Dobson. And in that book, he shared a life experience of his that really stuck with me and that I remember really well, even 10, 12 years later, whatever it was since I've read that book. In fact, I think I maybe even used this illustration one other time in a message. So when Dobson got to college, he was a tennis player. And one of the goals he had was to win the school's tennis tournament. You see, there was this big permanent trophy that was in their trophy case at the school. And every year, the winner of that trophy or of the tournament got their name inscribed on the trophy. And so that's what Dobson wanted. He wanted his name inscribed on that permanent trophy. So he worked and he worked and he practiced and he practiced and he focused and he focused on tennis. And by the end of those four years, Dobson had his name inscribed on that trophy, not once, but twice. And every time he walked back, Past that trophy case. It was kind of validation of what he accomplished and of a little bit of glory that he had attained. Well, years after college, Dobson long uh, moved from that city. He received a box in the mail. He had no idea where it came from or who sent it, but he opened up that box and inside was a note. And the note said this, Jim, I found this in the dumpster during school remodeling. Thought you might like to have it. Have any guesses of what was in the box? You're tracking with me, I'm sure. It was the permanent trophy from the trophy case that had his name inscribed on it not once, but twice just 30 short years later, the little bit of glory that Dobson had attained was all gone. And as he held that trophy and looked at it, he thought about how unimportant it really was, something that he had thought before had been so important. Have you ever had a moment like that in your life? Have you ever had a moment that challenged the way you think about life and what it's all about? Have you ever had a moment that challenged the way you thought about yourself and why you're here and and how you're using your time? I mean, to be honest, 2020 has been filled with those moments whether it's the civil unrest that is being experienced just north of us in the cities right now, or whether it's the worldwide pandemic, COVID-19 and all of its aftermath, pretty much everything that we have tended to find earthly glory in or to feel is so important from an earthly perspective, either have been compromised or have been taken away altogether this year. You think of careers in small businesses, and finances. We think of school and graduations and proms. We think of sports being taken away. We think of the ability to worship together in person being taken away. Summer vacations. Even for some of us, the ability to get together with grandkids or other immediate family, even grandparents, being a hard thing to do and sometimes unable to do it all together. This year has been filled with moments that have made us stop and to think about life. And the truth is, on our screen, I want to just really be honest with you and to acknowledge that this season that we're in, It's been difficult. Sometimes people think that if you're a Christian, what that means is you just kind of ignore the realities of life and just pretend like everything is great. That's not how the Bible reads. Life on earth is difficult for a Christian or a non-Christian. And it makes total sense if right now you feel a little bit off of normal, that you've got different feelings and emotions going through your heart and your mind. That totally makes sense. Now, I don't want you to stay there, but it makes sense that you and I would feel some things that we don't otherwise feel in this season. But I I also want you to know this so that we don't miss it, that this season has also been an opportunity. This season has been an opportunity for growth, an opportunity for reevaluation, an opportunity for a reassessment. When figuratively the buildings of our world have crashed to the ground, they don't need to remain crashed. But instead, we have an opportunity to build new, to build fresh, to build better, on the best foundation, which is Christ. This morning, what I want to do is give you the big idea at the beginning of this message, and then we're going to talk more about it, and I'm going to bring some closure to it at the very end. But here's where we're going today. Here's what I I want you to recognize and realize. It's your first fill-in for today. That I am too small to be the point of the story. That my life is too short to be the point of my life. That my pursuits are too momentary to be the point of my pursuits. You see there is a much bigger picture that we have and that we can have. And sometimes in the middle of life, the best thing that could ever happen is for us to just have to pause and to think a little bit. And in those moments, God can pull back the curtain a little bit and remind us about who He really is and what this life is really all about. You see, when we see God for who He really is, it's then that I'm able to see me for who I really am. When we see God for who He really is, it's so that I'm able to see me for who I really am. And that's exactly What God did for the Israelites as they were wandering in the desert. For those of you who are brand new to this series, it's called Wandering. And I know that's kind of a little bit of a weird name and it's not real uh, positive thinking, you know, necessarily. It's a difficult word to use. But the truth of the matter is, is that for all of us, we feel a little bit of that right now. That... There's the old normal and the new normal whenever that gets here. And in the meantime, we're kind of wandering a little bit. And so in this series, we're taking a look at a group of people that had kind of the same thing happen to them. It was the Israelites. And their old normal had been in Egypt. Their new normal that God had promised was a better place called Canaan. But... For 40 years, they were caught in the wilderness, wandering. And so today, here's where we're at in that story. We're about two months after God delivered Israel from Egypt. And over those two months, if I could choose one word that would most or best summarize what the Israelites were up to, it would be this complaining. They were complaining about water and complaining about food. They were complaining about um, living conditions. In fact, in the chapter right before the one we're going to look at, Moses confesses to his father-in-law that he's absolutely exhausted and needs some help because from morning until night, his job was to deal with people's complaints to deal with people uh, disputes, to settle them between each other. This is kind of the conditions for God's people, as we get to Exodus chapter nineteen. Moses by God's direction has led the Israelites to the foot of Mount Sinai. Now, if you're someone who recognizes the name of that mountain, it's probably because you know, it's the mountain where God gave Moses the 10 commandments. And that's a really important section of scripture. It's in Exodus chapter 20, but there's something that I would say is just as important that happens one chapter earlier that kind of sets the stage for what Moses would then give to the Israelites in chapter 20. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read through all of the verses that are in front of us. It's Exodus 3, 19, verses 3 through 19. And then we're going to talk about it. So we turn to Exodus chapter 3. I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 19. Then Moses went up to God And the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, "This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, that would be the Israelites, and what you you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, that's an important verse that we're going to look back at later." Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is already mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back to the people, summoned the elders, and set before them all the words of the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, we'll do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, now Moses is back on the mountain again, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Um, Whenever people in the Old Testament were going to be in the presence of God, whether that be at the temple or in a special situation like this, there was always a cleansing ritual that they needed to do. And it was a reminder that God is holy and we certainly are not. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast, may they approach the mountain. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and then they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, prepare yourselves for the third day. And abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning, and with a thick cloud over the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast, and everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke. Smoke billowed up from it like the smoke from a furnace. And the whole mountain trembled violently as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. I wanted you to hear the full context of what happened. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be at the foot of Mount Sinai that day? I mean, I've... I've heard people or talked with people that have lived through an earthquake, whether minor or major, and they just talk about how when everything around you is shaking, it just makes you feel so puny, so small, so powerless. On this day... There wasn't just an earthquake, although there was one of those. The whole mountain was shaking, but there was loud thunder and there was lightning. And it sounds like Mount Sinai was on fire and it says smoke billowing out of the top, like smoke coming out of a furnace. And what was the people's reaction? It says, everyone in the camp trembled. Of course they did. It was a moment where If any one of us was there, as God descended, it would have filled all of us with fear. And I think the the question that maybe you have, and especially maybe if you're someone who's new to God and new to the Bible, this is maybe not the kind of God that you've come to this service to think about or that you feel like you want in your life one that causes fear. The question becomes, why? Why did God come this way? I mean, why didn't God come like the loving grandfather with the flowing beard, with his arms out wide for a big bear hug for the children of Israel? Or why didn't he come like the smiling, strong shepherd with the staff that tenderly brings the flock to himself? Why did he come? in such power and in a way in such glory that caused fear to the people. Because this is the God that we know from the Bible and this is the God that the Israelites and sometimes you and I need to remember. What do I mean by that? Well, there's this phrase that comes up uh, over and over again in the Old Testament. I think it gets to the heart of what we're talking about. It goes like this. Proverbs 9 is one of those places. It says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And there's a whole sermon that we could preach, maybe even series on what that word fear means. And part of it does include a a healthy being afraid of knowing that God is really, really big and I'm not. But I think maybe in its context, even a better word than being afraid is the idea of having a healthy awe and a healthy respect for who God is and how big and powerful he truly is. When we understand how big God is, how powerful he is, how holy he is and how nothing ultimately is out of his control. We are in the right place to best understand our relationship with God, it's the starting point to understanding our relationship with God is an acknowledgement of the superiority of God. Here's the problem. That oftentimes, number two, our view of God is too small. I'll confess that. And when I take a moment to think about it, I know better, but as I live out my life, there are days where my view of God is often too small. I think of my prayer life. It's an amazing blessing that God has invited every single one of us through the mediator, which is Jesus Christ, that we have an open door to God's throne. And he tells us that you can bring everything on your heart and on your mind to him. But if I were to be honest, I think sometimes I manipulate that blessing of prayer to treat God almost as if he's my cosmic butler and that I'm here to kind of, tell him what he should do for me and to kind of advise him on what's best for my life. (laughs) Instead of using prayer as the most awesome communication relationship tool that there is to lay out to him all the things that I'm feeling and then ultimately to ask him to bring my will into connection and under his perfect will. We so often treat or think of God too small. I think of how I so often might feel like he owes me something. And at at its very base, I know it's not true, but the way that I I live and think that I'm almost... I'm owed blessing. (laughs) I mean, I could have been dishonest on my taxes like most people are, but I I wasn't. Did you see that, God? (laughs) Or I could have treated my coworker way worse for what they did. And you know what? My boss would have done that. God, I mean, come on, look at me. Or how about this one? I don't know if this can be true of anyone out there, but I've watched every online church service since all of this started. I mean, look at me, Lord, look how how good I am. And so easily our hearts and our minds go to this place where because of how good I am, that God deserves, that I deserve to be blessed by God. You know, here's the reality. This is big. God does not exist to bring glory to me. He created me. He created you. I exist to bring honor and glory to him how easily and how quickly as we journey through life with all of its busynesses and all of the uh, forces of this world, so to speak, that are, are moving us in one way or another, that we forget this simple thing of how big God is, how small I am, and that I exist to bring him glory. And so as the Israelites were towards the beginning of their wandering, as they were filled with complaining, God took them to the Mount Sinai, to the foot of Mount Sinai. And he taught them what it looks like to have a healthy awe and respect for the glory of God. That was their moment. I've got a, another one for you. Think about this. Think about how big the universe is. There's a Christian pastor in Atlanta named Louis Giglio, and I've always appreciated how he's been able to talk about the glory and the bigness of God by making certain comparisons to how big the universe is. So as an example, he said that you can fit 960,000 Earths inside of the sun. That if the Earth was the size of a golf ball, that the sun, its diameter would be 15 feet wide. Or how about this? As big as that might sound, just know that the sun is not even close to the biggest star in the universe. In fact, One of the other ones is named Betelgeuse. That particular star happens to be twice the size, not of the sun, but of the earth's orbit around the sun. That if the earth was the size of a golf ball, that the diameter of Betelgeuse would be six empire state buildings on top of each other. Just think about that for a moment. And what about you and what about me? Well, we're somewhere on this little golf ball, smaller than a pinhead in comparison. And yet, all of that and way more. God created with just his words. It blows our minds. And yet it doesn't at all blow his. We have an amazingly big, powerful, and perfect God. And maybe one of the feelings that we could have is almost a little bit of being afraid of God or thinking that there's no way that we could have a good relationship with him. That leads us to number three. You see, just because you're small and we are compared to God does not mean that we are insignificant. Being small does not mean being insignificant. Let's go back and look at what God shared with Moses before all of the lightning and the thunder and the shaking of the earth. Let's go back to verse four of our text. God reminds Moses of this. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on Engel's wings and brought you to myself. This imagery of God taking the Israelites out of Egypt like an an eagle would carry something away from danger is such a perfect illustration. (laughs) How did the Israelites get out of Egypt? Did they outrun the Egyptians? Did they have a a war and defeat the Egyptians? No. No. You know, when they were cornered by the Red Sea and the Egyptian army was approaching, did they all put on flippers and snorkels and a million plus people all just swim through the Red Sea? Nope, not that either. God did it all. Why? It's the question of the day. Why? There is no good reason, it's just His grace and his patience, and his love. And we have a big, powerful God who is worthy of our respect, and we should never forget that. But we also have a God who is filled with grace and compassion and who was patient with the Israelites for 40 years of wandering. And believe me, the complaining, unfortunately, continued But like we've been saying in this series, Israel's story is not exactly the same as ours. Our wandering is different and our salvation is different too in this way. Our rescue has been from sin. In fact, I want to make a comparison here as we turn to Hebrews chapter one. It says this, that the son reference to Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory. That when you think of God's glory, think of Jesus and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purification for sin, that is, he paid the price so that our sins would be washed away. He now sits down at the right hand of the majesty of God, the father in heaven. God is worthy of our glory, or of his glory, and for us to give him glory because of how big and powerful and holy he is, and also because of how loving and patient he is. And we think about this, we think about how Jesus, God's son, came into this world, and although he is always, always worthy of glory, that for his years on this earth, he chose to veil that glory. That the son of God, worthy of all glory, became a human being. That he lived through the hatred of other people for him. That he allowed himself to be beaten and finally to be crucified. That the love of God was seen as he rescued us from sin and was willing to set aside his glory for a time so that then, as he conquered death, he rose again in all the glory that is due him as he powerfully conquered sin for you and for me. (laughs) If that's not something that gets you excited to think about the the change of life and the relationship we get to have with a powerful God because of Jesus, then I got to say, you may not have a pulse because it is the greatest news that there could ever be. That we have hope and we have a future. That the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but that in his grace and love, he has rescued us even when we didn't deserve it. I told you I was going to bring all of this together at the end. Let's go to our fourth fill-in. I'm too small to be the point of the story, but I've been rescued, and now I live for God's glory. I'm too small. My life is too small. My existence on this earth is too small to live for tennis trophies or for bank accounts or for summer vacations. Those are blessings, but I don't live for those things. I'm too small to be the point of the story. I've been rescued, and now I live for God's glory. There is no doubt that we live in a challenging Time right now, between COVID-19 and racial tensions and civil unrest, there have been many things that have happened that have stopped us in our tracks and forced us to to think and to reevaluate. And while I will never want to live through 2020 again. I pray that you see the opportunity, not as we came to the foot of Mount Sinai in 2020, but as we've come to this moment, as we come to this time, to recognize that we have a great and glorious God. And because he is so big and so powerful, we do not need to fear And because he has given us hope for eternity and changed our lives and made us his child, we have a brand new reason to get up in the morning, to live and to use the time we have on this earth. That he doesn't exist to give us glory, but that we exist every day to give glory to him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that through the words of Scripture that we were able to experience just a little bit of what the Israelites experienced at Mount Sinai so that we might receive that that knowledge of who you are that we so desperately need that you are holy and powerful. And yet, You are the one who comes to rescue us on eagle wings through your son, Jesus. Lord, may this so work in our hearts and in our lives that our only response can be, Lord, use me to live for you and to give you glory. We pray all this in Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen.